This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Billy Offland, you may not recognize the name, but the guy's 25 years old and he's the second youngest person out of the United Kingdom to have visited every single country in the world. That's 197 countries and you'll hear in the beginning we get into that there's a bunch of lumpers and splitters when it comes to the travel community that either say that it's 205 countries or whatever. But the dude's visited every single country. And he did it through a lens of sustainability and conservation. And I first came across him when he was visiting a good friend of ours in Pakistan, Isa, with the Padri uh, Private Reserve. And he started understanding what hunting was doing for the people of Pakistan. And so Billy and I have been trading Instagram DMs for quite some time. We finally got him on the podcast because he's finally quit traveling for a little bit. But this is the start of probably a very much longer podcast series with Billy because the guy has seen hunting in three or four different places around the world from a lens of a complete non-hunter that is purely looking at it from a conservation sustainability perspective. So enjoy. It's a great conversation. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me 
You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. I feel like, uh, very appropriately, I feel like Billy off land right now. <laughs> I don't know Go what on. time zone I'm in. I don't know what city I'm waking up in. Um, it must be like what your life is like, right? Mate, it has been like that. And now I'm back home and it's like, oh, grounding. Time to reflect and think and find routine and try and make sense of everything that's really happened in the past couple of years, really. You've literally been on the go for what? Three years? Four years? Yeah. Um, I actually did the maths on it the other day. Um, I've been outside of the UK for 55% of the past four years, including finishing off getting a degree. And what is your degree in? So that's in sustainability and environmental management. Fantastic. I like that yeah. a lot. A lot that I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, Oh, maybe they do, but we'll reiterate. I have a bachelor's in environmental conservation biology. I have an honors in wetland ecology, a master's in wetland ecology, and a PhD in aquatic biogeochemistry. Oh, nice. What a combo of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all to do because I fell in love with swamps when I visited Botswana when I was 16 years old. Yeah, I mean, that place, you can't help but fall in love there. Yeah, we're going to do a huge documentary in Botswana in June. We've got three, almost three weeks in, in Botswana. We're going to be in three different, um, very marginal areas uh -huh. in Botswana. And we're going to look at sort of the impact of essentially hunting as a land use in those areas and really try and push back some of the rhetoric that is, well, these lands can just be converted to ecotourism. And yep. some of these places are just like, nobody wants to go there except <laughs> a hunter. Yep. Yeah, I know the story. You're making me jealous. I'm happy to be back home, but talking about three weeks in Botswana is like, oh, come on, get me back out there. Man, we should, you know, you, know, you, may, you may have a future in here because there's, uh, there's just lots of work to be done, Billy. And uh, we need non-biased individuals that think about things from just a very different perspective um and we try to be you know us we try to be very like down the middle of the road not this rah 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 beat yeah. your beat your forehead and your and your <laughs> chest about this is who we are as hunters but rather let's just let's just look at it a little bit as the truth and if there's a little bit of something that's a little suspect, or as my as my eleven year old and nine year old are saying now, if it's sus, I'm like, what the hell is sus? I guess it's this new <laughs> terminology coming out of the kids right now. Um, then we should talk about it, you know? For sure, man. I'm yeah, all about trying to tell stories and just saying things for what they are, and just looking at it on face value. Like that's something which drove my missions and journeys over the years. Just get out there and see for what it is, and make my own mind up for what's going on through the things I've seen in my own eyes, really. Mm-hmm. Hundreds, hundreds. Well, Billy, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast, my friend. Is Offland actually your last name? <laughs> it is. 
It is. And it's, no one truly believes that it is. People who've been following me on Instagram that I meet when traveling is like, is that actually your name? And then they see my passport and it's like, wow, that is pretty apt. And it especially when my, I belong in the water and on the beach. So it's like even better. <laughs> Islands is where I'm at. So off the land, it's like, yeah, okay. Made to be, really. So give everyone just a brief little quirk about you. Uh, obviously, there's something extremely special about you in comparison to most people we talk to. But just give people a little bit of rundown of who Billy Offland is. Well, so I guess the big thing you're alluding to is probably from last week, I just finished off traveling to every single country in the world, which is all well, I class it as 197 UN countries. What do you mean you class as 109? Is there, is there like debate? Is there this like yeah. controversy about like how many countries there are? Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, the travel community is an amazing place, but there's always that room <laughs> for, oh, but there's 193 UN countries. And it's like, oh, but you could class 195 or 197 with four observers. And some people are like, but also it's like you can have 205 if you class away like the breakaway states that class them as a thing. And then it's like, but then you've got all the countries which are still sort of colonized, like New Caledonia, which is French, and like the Cook Islands, which is New Zealand. And you can just go on and on and on forever. Oh, my gosh. Like you've Lumpers got to, you've and got to splitters, draw the right? line somewhere and go, right, to say I've done every country in the world has to be the 197. But then you can get super carried away. And a platform called Nomad Mania has like 1,301 places. And that just keeps you wanting to go and go and go. But I guess breaks it down into this idea that you've never truly seen all of the world. And mm. there's always n new little places to discover. And I always say, look, the wind can change direction. You've got a completely new experience in a place. Mm -hmm. so you've never truly done it. So Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. How old are you now, Billy? Because you're like the second youngest or third youngest to do this. Yeah, so I'm 25. And I mean, okay. if we're talking stats, I think there's been like... 315 people that have ever done it i'm like the sixth youngest fourth youngest guy second youngest from the uk meh, 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 meh. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, of yeah. That. yeah yeah so i guess maybe let's just start with a very basic question like i did you just when you first started traveling you're like oh i want to do this or it was almost like wow i've done i i got a little bug of how i wanted to travel and I was excited and I did maybe 20 or 30 countries and then like, huh, I could probably do something bigger than this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's probably one of the most important things to say at the start is that I don't think I ever set out with the intention of purely traveling to every country in the world. That was sort of not my self-indulgent goal um, and very much the journey through in the, these past three years where it's been hectic travel has been driven by a larger journey, which I call my world conservation journey. But starting from the beginning, I was very fortunate that my parents loved to travel. Um, and from a young age, dad was taking us off all across the world to 
sort of random places which you wouldn't expect young kids to go to and mainly driven through he said trying to see places sort of before they're ruined which i think Mm. is a pretty harsh description of the reason for traveling but it was quite an important one he was he'd traveled and seen the way that the world was changing in terms of culture socially Mm -hmm, environmentally mm -hmm. and he just wanted to give his kids the opportunity to see as much of the world in this condition that we are now and um, before it changes yeah, yeah so yeah it's like traveling all over especially focusing on islands and that's why i said i love being off the land and remote islands was our sort of main thing but it's like hitting north korea by the age of 15 and just doing really Jeez. interesting stuff and you, you sort of i guess you get to a point where that buzz of travel and adventure is there and for me like i think i'd been to like 80 countries by the age of 18 and then it was just a natural next steps for me like mm-hmm. school so like, what am i gonna do and it's like well i love the natural world and i've been scuba diving since i was 11 and from there i i find the ocean is one of the easiest places where you can see environmental destruction when you're yeah. under those waves it's the easiest thing to see you can go to one mm-hmm. place and you see the most beautifully pristine coral reefs and the next place you can see somewhere that's been completely bombed out. And that was sort of my first understanding of, oh, so dad talks about these places changing, but I'm seeing it now as environmental change. And it's like, and so naturally, so the first thing I wanted to do, I went and worked in conservation in a little West African island called South Tamein Principe. Mm-hmm. And I was there with a bunch of amazing conservationists age 18, 19, in a remote West African island, just sort of living this conservation world. And then things just went on and on from there, did my degree. And then it's like, suddenly everything started coming together from all directions. And it's like this passion of travel, this passion of understanding what's happening on with the biodiversity in the world came together. And it was like, I got to a point in my studies and in my life where it's like, I want to go out there and I need to go and see this myself with that being mm. the main focus. And I got permission off university and it was like, this has to be the goal. I'm, I want to try and see and hear stories from the front lines of the biodiversity crisis in every country in the world mm. or as many countries get as much of a global perspective as I possibly can. Mm. And reaching every country in the world was just an added bonus, really. Yeah, like that, yeah, was, yeah. that sort of rounded off this thing of going, I want to understand what's happening on the front lines all across the world to have that perspective, to be able to take that knowledge of place and of people and experience into my life going forward. Mm. You know, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating journey because a lot of people don't look at when they go traveling, they don't look at conservation they're not not they're not looking at it through a conservation lens or a biodiversity lens or a sustainability lens and i think that was the first thing that intrigued me with you when i first got to meet you well not meet you here we're seeing each other for the first time um but you know really interact with you through instagram and whatnot and and really just i honestly it was one of the it was one of the most favorite things that I would see through social media. And social media is such a just a terrible place. But knowing that you were on your travels was just like, oh man, I'm gonna go on a journey with <laughs> Billy today, you know. And I can guarantee you, I don't know, you know, you don't have as many followers as you should. Um, but I'm sure a lot of people felt exactly the same way, you know. 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's all that's all I wanted to do is that I had the privilege of being able to go on this journey. And the driver for the journey very much was going, was seeing and hearing reports about what was going on and going, God, there's so much people don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have the privilege and the skills, I guess, from traveling from a young age to be able to go out there and confidently move about these places and chat to people. And it's like, I want as much as possible, I want to bring people on this journey with me because there's no point doing it by myself. And I guess that's similar to what you do. It's you're searching for truths and stories and things like that. And you want to use your platform and skills and abilities to bring people mm-hmm. on that journey with you. Mm-hmm. You, you know, one of the things that stood, stood out to me is when you were, because number one, I'm fascinated, right? And, and maybe you can help me here. Uh, the journey that stood out to me was you on a freaking motorbike going through Congo, Zaire, freaking going through the jungle, you know, river journeys, whatnot. I don't even know where to start. Let me ask this, number one. You must have your, your, your packing, your travel packing, like dialed down to like a backpack, right? Yep. Well, I, I'd argue I still have too much. But you get to a point where it's like, I know I can travel with exactly what I've, what I've got and what I need. And then you realize that you can strap anything to the back of a motorbike. Jeez. And are you using just your iPhone the, the entire time? Or do you take like a little Nikon or something like that for your photos? Yeah, well, um, so I shoot um, on a hand-me-down Leica, which is super lucky. So I shoot stills and that's something I've grown to love loads, just taking mm-hmm. photos and properly and immersing myself photos. in and the And they're great moment. photos. Thank you. And then, but I also had a little like DJI Osmo, which did all my video stuff. And so it's having that combination of little bits of kit. And I think that's what weighed me down most, actually, just loads of tech and camera kit. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just like, I just want to be able to capture as much as possible. And so it's, yeah. No, dude, it was uh, that, that journey. Like, did you even organize it? Did you just like say, okay, I just need to go from point A to point B and I'm just going to ask people how to get there? Yeah, and I mean, I'm glad you brought this one up because this is actually my favorite journey I've ever done. Holy from, shit, it was like, crazy. From, from a traveling perspective, I think, especially now, like traveling has almost never been easier, really. The world is so well connected. There are so many flights, so much transport, mm. so much out mm. there on the internet to tell you exactly what to do. You can communicate with anyone from anywhere in the world, people generally speak your language or, or there's someone out there. The traveling is quite easy and a lot of travel has been done. So I think there's a point where the holy grail is trying to find something that no one else has really done before in the way that you want to do it. And that sort of ended up being this journey. It was one of those where I could have splashed thousands and thousands of dollars on doing it easily, getting a driver, getting a speedboat to take me down. But I'm like, Nah, and I guess for anyone listening, it was a the journey we're talking yeah, so about was, to, was yeah. To talk us through it was an overland journey from Angola to Yaoundé in Cameroon, uh, well Jeepers from Cabinda, creepers. the exclave, sort of. I guess towards the end, but the middle of COVID, where traveling around Africa was still a logistical and bureaucratic nightmare, where rules changed at the click of a fingers, and mm. you basically had to be incredibly responsive. Um, but yeah, it saw me cross basically the entirety of Congo from Ponwa up to Oweso at the north. And the point was to get into Zanga Sanga National Park. 
And Correct. That there, there aren't. I don't think there are many places as pure and as special and as biodiverse as Zanga Sanga, located basically and where is in the that? south, in the so Congo, southwestern Central African Republic. It's yep. part of like a tri-national um, park area. There's a park in northern Congo. There's a park in southeastern Cameroon and Zanga Sanga, which all basically connect into a large protected reserve. And yeah, to get there, there wasn't really too much information. And I was piecing together sort of reports from other travelers who'd done it a little bit the other way and all of that. But it essentially bent like 24 hours on buses, cross a river on a little boat, get a motorbike three on the back of a motorbike down logging roads, three hours to the border post with Congo Central African Republic, get to an amazing village, um, almost exclusively inhabited by like Cameroon, um, Congolese pygmies and just a national park. And then I managed to hitchhike on the national park boat rather than get a one and a half day dugout canoe trip to um, the spot on the Central African border, camp overnight in a tiny village, which saw me like, I got basically the moment I got there, someone was chasing someone around with what seemed to be a machete because he <laughs> did something with, the other man's girlfriend i think yeah, yeah. which is uncharacteristic for those people I, we can't we can't say it's always like that but it's like okay wow so this is this is nervy no phone signal no look nothing. it's a it's a story worldwide man <laughs> men chases another man because he you know did something with his wife or woman or girlfriend <laughs> yeah so it's hilarious and like then the next morning i'm like can i just get to the park Can i just get to the park and he's like no, it's too dangerous at night. And I'm like, what is there? Because Central African Republic's known for rebels. But he's like, mate, there are far too many elephants out on that path for you to go Jeez. down this motorbike at, on a motorbike at night. So next day, rattling along this basically mud track, probably one and a half meters wide, with an army, paid an army guy who's got an AK-47 strapped to his front. And we're just legging it through pretty much pristine jungle up to this lodge. Um, up to this community and you get there and I think it's probably the best place in the world to see forest elephants mm. and you get gorillas and you get chimpanzees and you get incredibly genuine experiences hunting with the back of pygmies and camping out with the back of pygmies but yeah the elephants really you go to a hide looking into a a by like a, a clearing and there's like 150 forest elephants just hanging out amazing and, and i think you know as much as anyone how rare and special that moment mm -hmm. is to just be able to watch those gentle giants mm -hmm. just go about their business in a very pure and yeah amazing way are you and taking are, are you taking malaria prophylactics or are you just like screw it <laughs> well short answer is no but that is that is not recommended and not the way to do it but I think that's partly because I was traveling for so long throughout Africa, months and yeah, months at a time. Yeah, it would have killed your liver. That would have killed my liver, and I find it massively plays with my head as well. And when you've mm. got to be able to, when you're traveling by yourself, making trying to make things happen by yourself, I can't be sort of fogged up. But also, yeah. I plan I plan my trip well that I never made it to places during rainy season. You hear mm -hmm. completely different stories of people who get there during rainy season, you're swamped out, you're just covered in mosquitoes and malaria. And, oh, and other serendipitously, things. I 
ended up making it when it wasn't like that. Yeah, yeah. So to the heart probably of what we're going to talk about and probably have multiple podcasts about it, let me ask this question. When when you got to that lodge, you called it a lodge Mm -hmm. in this game reserve, and obviously super, super, super remote, right? Mm -hmm. How else would people get there other than the way that you got there? So the other ways to get there is you can, I think you can charter a private plane from Bangui, which is the main area of Central African Republic, or it's like, I think, 16 hours by road. Or you can cross in the other side from Cameroon, which is like probably two days drive from the biggest airport down logging roads and through national Mm. parks and then get a speedboat for a couple of hours down river to the lodge. Like it is pretty inaccessible and... But is it a truly yeah. a lodge then, or is this a, just an outpost of the, the game reserve itself? Well, actually, there, there is an amazing lodge there. And I guess really? that's, that's, that's the point that you find with places like this, that money to do conservation and to carry out conservation in these areas run by some of the big conservation organizations, the only people that can really afford to get there, because there I don't think there are many people who would do it the way I have. Other people have since right. I've been there. But the only other ways for people to get in, and I've experienced this so much, is you've got to pay the money. And the people who can pay the money to charter the plane or get a private transfer and boat are the wealthy people who then expect a very impressive lodge at the other side. And I got to that lodge, saw the price and went, okay, maybe I'll go and stay in the village. But (laughs) (laughs) there are amazing facilities there. And I think that's a big way that people that these sort of parks still exist that it's people who can spend the money do spend the money to come here so that's a that's an interesting thing so the the, the lodge they have enough people coming there that they are sustaining the lodge and sustaining the conservation effort around it i can't say for certain but it's it's definitely a, a reasonable part of their budget, I think, or to hmm. keep staff employed and to keep whatever. Um, because uh, getting funding to carry out certain conservation uh, actions in this part of the world is not easy. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the time you find, and I'm not too sure how I feel about it, to be honest, there are massive ups and downs, but tourism generally is, um, is such a big way of people earning money for conservation actions. And it can be a very successful model, but also it can be a very, very easily corrupted model, I think. And I think traveling during COVID to certain places around Africa, especially, but um, shows the vulnerability of relying on tourism dollars for s- sort of funding conservation actions. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you're absolutely right. And I think. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating that that place in such a remote location. It, it's almost the rhetoric that is used a lot from a hunting perspective, right? Is that a lot of these places are conserved because the only the only crazy people that would go there that have good money are hunters because the typically the accommodation isn't great. You know, typically it's roughing it. Typically it's malaria. Typically, it's all the stuff that, you know, highfalutin people are just like, hmm, yeah, I don't want to go there. Yeah, and you see it so much. As you say, it's a massive thing 
for hunting as well. Like I remember probably one of the first hunting experiences that I went and explored myself was, and I think when I first ended up getting in contact with you was up in the mountains of Pakistan. Yeah, with Isa. Yeah. And he's in, so I saw Isa at his lodge down in the Punjab and then I was ready to sort of move on to Afghanistan and Isa suddenly went, all right, Billy, come on. I've got a friend. You're going up, you're going up to the Himalayas tomorrow. Uh, get packed. 5 a.m. We're going to the airport. And I'm like, I can't turn this down. And yeah, we ended up traveling for three and a half days through the Karakoram Highway and across the most crazy landscape. And it's one of those things of, unless you're climbing K2, you don't really head up to this part of the world and there. And even then, even most hunters don't want to go to the place that we were at. Yeah. And so it's, it was incredible seeing the p- sort of kind of the pressure from the PH's perspective on sort of making sure that the guys got what they came for. Because it's like you can't take someone all of that way without mm. having a little bit of success. And you hear it in South African parks as well and across East Africa where it's like tetsy flies are everywhere. And it's like if, if the model that you're going for, which is if like tourism dollars and dollars of people visiting is going to sustain the the biodiversity of that area, then you've got to end up getting people to these places because then what happens to the land? Yeah. And I I think land management, well, it's always been important, but it's just sort of cemented itself as being even more important with the new global biodiversity framework, which is the gods from above have said, the way that conservation is going to work and the way that we're going to halt biodiversity loss and look after our planet is by preserving 30% of mm-hmm. all land, 30% of oceans and 30% of coastal areas. And so suddenly where now we're at 17% of land protected, 8% of ocean protected, all of a sudden we're going to have to protect so much more land and there are going to need to be conversations about, and there are conversations about how that's going to best happen. Yeah, and it's, it's a, it's it's certainly a rhetoric that we should be using in our favor now. This this thirty for thirty, essentially twenty thirty for thirty percent land mm-hmm. and oceans, as you say, because I think that's one of the, the things that I I use the most is that forget about forget about wildlife populations for a second when it comes to hunting. Let's just look at the habitat that is being protected um, and all the other things that go along with that protection of habitat and. It's quite, you know, it's a very, very big statistic, especially in Africa. You know, one point five. I think the, I think the number needs to be revisited. Actually, I've used it a lot, and I've had a couple of people reach out to me and go, "Yeah, you've got these, but you've got these two. So the number that we typically use is one point five million square kilometers in Africa is protected by hunting, and there's about seven hundred thousand protected." under national parks kind of scenario. I do know somebody reached out to me and said that there's a park in Algeria and a park in Chad that almost equal about 500,000 themselves, two of them. So I'm like, "Mm, maybe our number's a little bit off, but I researched those two parks and those two parks weren't really designated for wildlife at all. They were more designated like for places that you've been, those big sort of sand monuments, sand formations, old, um, rich maybe like a cultural historical relevance than rather being protected for wildlife mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but habitat is key right you've mm-hmm. seen it first and foremost all around the world 
yeah i mean habitat and it's one of those things that you go well yeah what what's more important like you can't if you're protecting wildlife without the habitat then at some point the wildlife's going to have nowhere else to go and strict and, and you know it biology knowledge has certain relationships between biodiversity abundance how much life can be sustained in certain areas of land but then if you protect certain amounts of land then you know the animals will always come back and so it's finding ways to mm. sort of preserve this amount of land and in a way as well which i which is a big thing for me which became more important for me across my journey still respects those traditional custodians of that land and I think that's one of the most important. You look at, and I mean, let's go through, for anyone that doesn't know, the sort of stats behind what we are really facing in terms of this biodiversity crisis or like the sixth extinction. Because really like ITBIS and the Intergovernmental Science Policy Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, who's like the big UN organization for looking at biodiversity and trying to figure out what we should do and the science behind it. They say that a million species are going, uh, uh, could be going extinct within the coming decades. This yep. is one in five of all species on planet Earth are threatened with some form of extinction. And so we're not talking about just the plains game of Africa or the large megafauna species, elephants, rhinos. We're talking about everything across all ecosystems across the whole world. And they're going extinct because of so many things, but a lot of it is like, sort of human intervention in these right. areas right. like what have i got 66 percent of marine areas have been significantly altered by human beings 75 percent of land significantly altered and the extinction rates that we've got at the moment are a thousand times higher than the background extinction rates so the what we're dealing with is massive in all areas of the world everywhere but what mm -hmm. you find is that it's unfair to say that it's altered by all people and that there are some people out there who have a different respect for the land and a different way of managing the land and who've been managing the land for hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years and these are generally your indigenous people and local communities and they may be six percent of the population but in their lands which is 60 percent of all land on earth is under or should be under the traditional custodianship of these indigenous people and local communities although we've only respected 17 percent of that and they they hold 80 percent of the biodiversity in their lands mm. with and so it's and i think what we find is perhaps the people who have done the damage to that land and significantly altered the land around the world are the ones who are trying to restore it but also taking it away from the people who do know how to manage it do you is it is it very prevalent do you think it's more and more prevalent this idea of the sort of western colonial attitude to restoration and conservation over the traditional values of the land and the and the animals i think so i i think that well the presiding sort of conservation narrative and the decision making comes from comes from the western world and i think if you look at um sort of africa historically i don't think we've and the way that conservation could potentially go with this new 30 by 30 i think nothing has really changed since the land grabs of the colonial times 
and I and and this worries me. Well, it doesn't it doesn't worry me necessarily because it might have positive results for wildlife. But I think when talking about wildlife, you've got to talk about the people who live there as well. Mm. And all across the world, I've seen the pretty significant impacts of sort of this. I don't know whether you call it colonial conservation, fortress conservation, these prevalent issues of wilderness and the way we conceptualize what nature and wildness and wildlife really is. And there are different understandings of what that is. And for years, we basically went, nature and people cannot coexist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's an incredibly Western way of thinking, I think, in which this sort of separation of nature and culture and people of, and nature. And I still think in some way that still drives our conservation decision-making today when we can't understand this sort of coexistence. And I've seen it sort of all over the world, had some incredibly profound experiences up in sort of the Kimberley area of Western Australia with some indigenous leaders who were sort of explaining their cosmologies and worldviews to me, where it's very much that link between spiritual relationships between humans and what we class as non-humans but they see as relations and it's that understanding of that humans and nature can coexist and work together which i think should be driving our decisions for conservation but for years we separated it and we separated those people who've been living in these areas and working that land and creating arguably this landscape which we call wild but which is actually a very sensitively cultured and created ecosystem of people of people and nature and i think we have we've got stuff to learn from that and i think respecting these communities and indigenous people and listening to them about how best to manage the land is one mm -hmm. way forward and mm -hmm. i think that should come in i don't know if we're talking about hunting like areas and we're talking about this um and trying to build up to 30% of land i think we have to listen to those people and involve them very heavily in that decision-making process and go, how do you think we best conserve the land? What is your knowledge telling us rather than going, we just need to take this land, fence it out and keep the game in. Mm -hmm. Billy, you're, you're a young guy in your travels. Did you, did you feel like the younger generation is getting, have the same in, knowledge in the traditional sense that the older generation, the elders have from looking after the land, looking after the wildlife, or are they more, I don't know, more, dare I say, modern in their thinking patterns? What, what, what was your general experience there? I think it, I think it is more modern. Um, and, but, but is there, is where, there, is I, there I conservation ethic traditional still, or is there conservation ethic more modern? It's, I think it's definitely more modern. I mean, you see this development and the globalization of the world and this, in a lot of places, this sort of drive to want to be a little bit more Western. Mm. But I don't know whether that comes from a desire to actually be like that or this idea that that's what they should be like. And I think potentially if we respect these traditions and cultures and give them the value and respect that they deserve, from a very much even a human rights perspective, then I wonder whether that knowledge still gets passed down and opportunities are still given for these people to be able to continue those traditions rather than the options being, 
either you conform to this Western way of thinking and living in the world, or you just sort of don't. And I think it's, it, I guess it's maybe a chicken or the egg thing. What comes first, people's drive to keep these traditional cultures and beliefs alive, which a lot of people would say is rather prehistoric, or if the world around us gives weight to those opinions and respect them, mm. will people want to keep that want to keep a part of that culture as well so i mean it's a difficult one but mm. i think there's so much value in listening to those people who've got so much history and knowledge on the land well maybe that was my question are, are those younger generations do they have that history do they have that knowledge are they are they keeping it are they implementing it <laughs> i don't know i don't know man i think that's because that's the key, right? Is that the, yeah. you've got these, you've got this traditional knowledge of like how they've been living with the land and living with the animals for hundreds of years, and now the 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 modern the modernity of of society of this desire to be more Western is it infringing? Is it sort of you know fracturing that that it, that traditional knowledge, which is like that's what we want, but you're losing it. So then. It's almost creating a, a a gap, an opportunity for the Western mindset to be like, oh, you you don't really know what you're doing any longer. Let us do it. Yeah, and honestly, I don't really know. I don't mm. I don't have a concrete answer to that. And I think that's that's part of the beauty of it. Questions like this is what will make me go back and explore these themes a little bit more. And yeah. You're not allowed to sort of romanticize that connection with the land, but you have to be, you have to keep, I, I feel like you've got to keep hope that that tradition still is there somewhere and there's so much to learn from it still. And that's mm -hmm. what I go back to talking about Ibis again. And they did that so well in that sort of monumental report, which talked about a million species. Give us a, days. tell for those that aren't familiar with Ibis, can you, what does the acronym stand for? Yeah, so it was, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. And they kind of bridge the science and policy side of mm -hmm. protecting biodiversity and what we do. And they put out a load of mon like groundbreaking reports, this global assessment report, which I still very much see as a Bible, and um, which I, at the time when I first read it, sort of put together everything I'd learned over the years and what really inspired me to go, this is what's happening. You can bullet point what's gone on, and this is what I need to go and look at on the ground. And what they did incredibly well in their assessment was they used this knowledge of indigenous communities and local communities and, com and combined that Western and indigenous knowledge to the mm -hmm. benefit for everyone and mm -hmm. included them in that decision-making process. And that I think that democratic way of making decisions and using knowledge is incredibly important billy um let me ask this question sort of to give a little bit of context to why you're on a like dare we call us a hunting podcast but uh, <laughs> i think we're i think we're more of a discussion conservation wildlife sort of trending type podcast um did you grow up what what did you did you grow up in a hunting community a non-hunting community like what's your background there I mean, my background was very much a sort of South Manchester town. 
I I grew oh, up. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I should have asked this question at minute one because this is when the podcast would have stopped or or didn't. What <laughs> what 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 football club do you aspire to belong to? I am a Manchester United fan. Oh my god! Thanks for the podcast, Billy. <laughs> Love you for what you do. Um, but we were never going to be talking again. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, I'm a Liverpool. I've been Liverpool since I was five years old. My brother's been Manchester United since he was five years old. So uh, it's just a running joke. It. You gotta love it. Yeah, yeah. So you just grew up a city kid, essentially. Well, yeah, a city kid. I was like, my connection to to nature, if anything, was there through travel and, and the squirrels in the park. Yeah, exactly. And it's like yeah. my existence, the, the most times I touched, touched the earth really was playing rugby mm-hmm. and playing footy and it's like sport and, but na- yeah, nature really happened to me when I was traveling. And so hunting was, it was just never something I ever thought about, ever had to think about, it was ever part of my existence apart from like clay pigeon shooting with a friend once. So lad. you really didn't have a perception of hunting growing up. It wasn't something that you were like, ah, these guys, you know, it was just nothing really. No, it was, it just wasn't there for me. And it's like, so I didn't, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I didn't, I had no, no feelings towards it. It had no bearing on my life. So it was just something I never had to think about, I guess. And the important thing here is until I started doing this journey and started asking questions and started getting curious about how conservation works around the world Mm. what works what doesn't what species are being conserved marine terrestrial mountains whatever and that brought me during my research of travels to and it started as we were talking about before in pakistan of like me sitting down and going right what am i going to explore here Mm -hmm. and i see things online of going articles talking about how hunting and trophy hunting in pakistan has been incredibly beneficial for the wildlife up there this that that and i go really really exactly (laughs) interesting how is that possible (laughs) yeah and then you read a little bit more and you go was that your epitome though was that your epiphany though because again coming from a neutral perspective for someone who doesn't know anything about hunting which is essentially where you came from did that did that rhetoric seem contradictory to you because I'm, I'm curious because a lot of people say obviously it, it makes sense right that hunting i.e you're killing animals is mm-hmm. actually saving animals yeah it's a very and contradictory I, rhetoric yeah exactly and, and you've got to tr- and for me it was then figuring out one sort of the, the theory behind it before i went there on the ground and go well how does that work but i'd spent in, enough time on the ground seeing how conservation projects were underfunded the struggle that battle for conservationists to have impact on the ground with the love that they have but they can't really have the impact that they deserve because there isn't the money and support there and then that i guess that's one of the first things that you sort of come to when you look at it it's this money idea of going well if you can put a, a monetary value on a species which wouldn't have a monetary value then you can give the communities or the things that might persecute it a reason to keep it there. Mm. And then, yeah, my question then became, 
sort of a very simple one that I found with hunting is going, well, can you take a life to save a life? Mm-hmm. Very simply. And after I think my trips in Pakistan, it, it was going, I sort of put it into my own head and go, when you start to understand the idea that if you can selectively take an animal or a couple of them and you can then assure the survival of the whole population, if you put it into a human terms, you might say something like, do you reckon you as a granddad, for example, might take a bullet to mean that your grandchildren can live a prosperous Ooh, life? That's a great way to look at it. And that, I, I think that was, that was where I came to at the end of that. And I don't think I ever came to the point of going, yes, no, yes. But I think if you put the shoe on the other foot and go, if you look at it from a human perspective, and if you can guarantee that your grandchildren will have mm. a very, very good life or will be protected, would you do that? But that, but that's assuming then that you get into the complications of going, oh, people are only going to shoot old males. No, 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 no. But I think the question still stands as being, I guess, if you, if you had to anthropomorphize ethics, it, yeah, yes. if you had to anthropomorphize it, that's a great analogy. Yeah. And because I think what I found when I was in Pakistan, very simply, is that on the surface and what the statistics were saying was that if it was controlled properly and if everything went to plan and by the book and you controlled it and you gave a certain amount of permits and the community was on board and they were doing everything correctly, then it could have positive effects on wildlife populations in certain areas. And for me, that sort of, and I guess the background is I had to come into it just ignoring any, any predispositions I might have had to hunting and just go asking the question of, well, is it, can it be good for biodiversity? We are in the middle of this sixth extinction. A million species are potentially going extinct. We need to do what we can to ensure that these populations can survive and thrive. So what different ways can we do it? And for me, if it was like, if hunting can sustain these populations and it's responsive to the fluctuations in populations and all of this, then so be it. It might be an option. And that's to say, like, I don't think I'll be a hunter. I don't think it's Mm. not part of my makeup. I don't. But if if it works, then then it works. And I don't think we should ever... In an ideal world, I think disregarding the culture of hunting and the pride that people have in that identity and way of being and history within it, I think if we never have to kill an animal so other animals can survive, then great. I'd much prefer yeah. we didn't. Yeah. But until there's, I guess, lack of a better alternative, until mm. in that mountains in Pakistan you can ensure the survival of these ibex populations, the markle populations, ultimately the snow leopard populations and everything else around it, then... Then it's, yeah. then it's an option that needs to be considered. No, 100%. No, you're nailing it on the head. And I think a lot of hunters would say the same thing. I think a lot of big hunting organizations would say the same thing. It's like, bring another alternative to us. Bring another alternative that is, brings the same amount of revenue, brings the same jobs, brings the same biodiversity protection. Yes, a few animals are taken at the end of their lifespan. That are going to die anyway. It's not that they're going to live forever. 
bring us an alternative, and we would be good with it. Because I think at the end of the day, we're all after the same thing. Yeah, and and I think it's. I mean, there's got to be in sort of honest discussion about it. Really, like I think you can look at the, as I said, the culture behind hunting. But I think when we're having these conservation debates and whether and the hunting conservation debate or the hunting debate very much revolving around potentially conservation we've got to sort of ask i guess what is it that we want to conserve and why do we want to conserve it and i think the first bit is going are we doing this because we want to conserve species and i think if not then you might need to find a good reason why you're doing it but if you're looking to conserve species Mm. then that needs to be at the forefront of everything we decide to do like Mm -hmm. for me i might say why why do i want to protect biodiversity and it's like my education would say xyz blah 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 like all of this but for me it's because i find it beautiful Mm. and i i want to protect it because i want to be diving pristine coral reefs Mm -hmm. and that sense of magic and i can ask you the same question why do you want to save wildlife Robbie? Mm. What, what is it well i want my kids to see it one day right i want my kids to experience the adventure and i think and I think that's why, for me, like areas like in big in northern Mozambique, like in Nyasa, uh, some of the Sulu areas in Tanzania, these big areas, the Kafui in Zambia, and and Kafui is actually quite a good example because there's both ecotourism and hunting up in the Kafui. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't matter. I just want those places to be to be wild and in a place of adventure that I can still experience today and my kids can experience in 50 years. Um, and a land use of hunting or ecotourism that allows it to happen, keeps it as wild as possible, produces the benefits for the community as best as they possibly can. That's what I'm interested in. Now, on the, on the other hand, I can, here's sort of maybe the, not, it's not the downfall of hunting, because I think it happens in every lifestyle. If you had to ask a hundred hunters, why are they going to Africa to hunt? 99% of them would be because they want to, you know, they want to, they want to kill an animal that they are interested in killing. Okay. That's the motivation. The motivation, some of which, maybe that was unfair, 99, maybe too much. Maybe it's 80%. Then you've got a big proportion of hunters that are doing it because of the adventure of like where they're getting to go and uh, the unknown kind of scenario. And that's what we get labeled. We get sort of attacked, uh, attacked as sort of a vulnerable spot is that people are hunting as their motivations are not, as you just suggested, from a conservation perspective. And that's absolutely true. We have to be truthful about that. But I prefer not to focus on the motivation of that individual, but rather the impacts and consequences of that individual that that individual doesn't even have any idea about. That is tied to the alpha, that's tied to the people, that's tied to the community, tied to the schooling, tied to the, the clinics. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's almost like this sort of juxtaposed, uh, um, sort of, again, I, I hate to use the word, it's juxtaposed paradigms. One that is mm-hmm. motivation to kill versus the benefits and impacts and consequences for the things that we've just been talking about, essentially mm-hmm. biodiversity conservation. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, a big bit of what I'm thinking about at the moment is because I've looked at sort of conservation all across the world and you look at the different ways that it's carried out in different countries and all of this, it, it comes back to me now, sat here in, in my flat going, well, how do you sort of, how do you communicate w- what what I might have learned about conservation? How How do you... How do you tell people to be more sustainable? How do you have a, a message which which sort of transgresses geographical and demographic boundaries to sort of, you can't give a single action to, sing, to a single, well, to a, a, a big audience. You can't say to be sustainable or to help conservation, you have to do this, 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 and this. Because it's not relevant to everyone. And if you have a specific audience, then maybe it works. But and it goes back to what we're saying about motivations. A big thing for me at the moment is going, and very much going back to this sort of indigenous people and their cosmologies and worldviews, it's this idea of mindset, I think. And I, I don't think I mind your actions per se, your day-to-day actions, what you do, as long as the mindset that you hold or try and culture for yourself and your community is one of respect, is one of integrity, is one of authenticity, that mm-hmm. you're doing things for the right reason and that you're conscious of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the impact that you have. Because I think if you're doing, like, if you're making unconscious actions, then that can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you've got no way of justifying why you're doing this and the impact that your action can have, then that's dangerous. But if you can... If you've got a sustainable mindset at heart, which is one build of, yeah, as I said, of respect, of trust for your relations and all things, then the way you go about, I don't know, we can bring it back to conserving, the way you go about that, that's up to you. That's your lifestyle. That's your experiences. That's all of that. That's what creates your mindset. And different people will have different actions which come of that. But I think if you can try and foster a sustainable mindset in yourself and your community, then the way you go about conserving or being sustainable, that's on you. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you can ensure yourself that authentically my head's in the right place and I'm doing things for the right reason, then your actions will follow in on that. Yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. Well, I know you hit a couple of countries and I'm going to sort of tease the end of this podcast because we're going to have you back as we've talked about before. <laughs> um, you, you essentially hit a couple of hunting-related areas, Pakistan being one of them. What were the other two? Um, well, I spent quite a bit of, well, good bit of time in Zim, Zimbabwe. I was in yep. a game reserve in South Africa, and I was down yep. at another sort of reserve in Eswatini. Um, yep. But I was, I was in a couple of conservanc- well, conservancy in Botswana. Um, the Botswana so yeah, Conservancy they were, they were the Hunt? Ones. Um, well, it was a it was a conservancy that was just being set up, which was interesting to see the development of a conservancy by one guy who was just trying to save what he loves, and what yeah. that would develop to is who knows. But it, the the ideas of wanting to conserve and what it was going to take to conserve mm-hmm. were there. Well, this is what I want to do. If you're okay with it, I'd like us to do. You know, obviously a couple of follow-up podcasts on each specific place because you came at it, again, not from a hunting perspective, from a pure conservation perspective. So one on Pakistan, we could probably join South Africa and Eswatini together 
one on Zim and one on Botswana, uh, because mm-hmm. I think it's just fascinating. Because you're gonna you're bringing a different viewpoint to it, right? You didn't go in it from a like, oh, I'm gonna I'm a I'm a big pro hunting advocate and. I'm going to, you know, show the the benefits of hunting. You went in it from a purely like, hey, I want to understand what's going on on the ground. And I know a couple of things went southwards in a, from the Eswatini perspective that uh, were quite disturbing. Um, so if you're keen, I'm keen. Yeah, man. Let's get them down. Send now that you've finished traveling, you know, share. I get, you, you know, you've got all the free time in the world, you know. Yeah, well, I say I finished traveling. I'm only just getting started, Robin. Only just getting started. The list of adventures is increasing by the day. Amazing. Amazing. Well, look, Billy, you're the man. I really enjoyed um, watching you, following you. Obviously, I'll still continue. Uh, Where can people find you if they're interested in sort of seeing more about who you are and your adventures? So, I mean, my Instagram is my main place, and that's at Billy Offland. And from there, you can get all my links to go and check out things I've been doing, conversations I've had, stuff I've posted, photos, videos, all of this. So yeah, go check me out on there. I've still got a massive backlog of videos that I was making as I was going along, but just got too stuck. These are called little ramblings, which are just really the stories from the front lines, the stories of my experiences and the things that I've learned and the things I was yeah made aware of while I was out on the ground. So there'll be some more of those coming for the rest of this year and hopefully some more stories coming. And I've got a film coming out at some point as well, Robbie. <laughs> a film? Yeah. With all yeah. your ramblings? No, well, I've been making a film for the past eight months um, in Pakistani Kashmir. Basically an environmental film about the impacts of climate change on remote beekeepers in Kashmir. Oh, shit. That sounds so, awesome. So, yeah. So keep an eye out for that, anyone, as well. Heck, yeah. Heck, yeah. Well, look, I look forward to having you back, my man. Uh, It's been a pleasure getting to know you, and hopefully we just get to know each other a little bit more, and hopefully our paths cross that we can meet uh, face-to-face one day. For sure. Thanks so much for your time, Robbie. appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.